This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad. And new data out of the University of Toronto reveals that the Omicron wave was actually more deadly for Zoomers 60 and older in Ontario than the previous two waves combined. More than 3,700 people over 60 died during the Omicron waves, and that's about 1,400 more deaths than were recorded during the Alpha and Delta waves combined. Now, I know people are sick of the sickness, but are we in a head-in-the-sand situation? Let's begin there, and let me give the numbers. What do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'd like to welcome... David Kravitz, Vice President of Zoomer Media and Chief Membership Officer at CARP, Bill Van Gorder, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Policy Officer at CARP, and Daryl Bricker, CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Hello, everyone. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Um, let us begin with David. So is this a situation where people are just, uh, you know, being a little blind to the actual reality? Well, I think um, it, w- it would be so if this was causing some uh, negative action or indifferent actions, but I'm not aware of, uh, of that second set of data. I know in my case, we just got our fourth shot, and I think everybody I know is being very careful about getting fully vaccinated. So I think, I think you, you had it right at the beginning. We might be fatigued. We might be tired of the topic, but I don't know that there's like a headlong uh, rush away from trying to be careful. Maybe there is, but uh, I think most older people I know of are being very careful. Daryl, what are you finding? Well, I think the the point about fatigue with uh, the disease is definitely the case. I mean, when we ask people, not just in Canada but around the world, what the most important issues are facing the country today, COVID only tops the list in a couple of countries, uh, which are you know in, in extreme breakout situations, like for Japan was you know fairly recently. But in Canada, uh, I can tell you that COVID is, in terms of the most important issue confronting the country today, has dropped from first place where it was for, you know, over a year uh, down to, you know, mid, mid-pack mid uh, after things like housing and inflation and a whole bunch of other things that are obviously not going to kill you, but are really more inconvenient. Uh, but yeah, I'd, I'd say that, that people are, um, they're not, um, I would say, resigned to the situation with COVID, but they're just factoring it in to how they live their lives. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, even with uh, virtually everyone I know that has traveled recently has come back with COVID. And most of those people, except for maybe one or two, they've, of course, not been in hospital, which is great but have been really quite sick. And the thing that struck me about it is that they were shocked. You know, they thought, well, if I get it, it's going to be nothing. Bill? Well, yes. And I think that's why the feedback I'm getting from 
CARP members and, and other uh, and other seniors is they're still very concerned. They're concerned that the rules are being lifted, that people are being less careful, that you uh, watch a, uh, you know, a full uh, stadium baseball game on the weekend and see very few uh, masks. Uh, it, it's, it's scary uh, for them. If you're, uh, if you're an older person, uh, you know that you're, you're going to be uh, vulnerable uh, to this. And we are hearing uh, stories from even younger people who are getting uh, COVID more often that they're very, very sick, much sicker than people were when they earlier got COVID. So among the cohort that I talk to, there's a real concern that we're, that we're not treating uh, uh, COVID seriously enough and not uh, following the rules that originally we were told would help keep us safe. Hmm. And there are regional differences. It's interesting. Jane Brown was in Quebec City over the weekend. She flew and she said that in the Toronto airport, uh, most people were wearing masks, but in Quebec, no. Uh, Daryl, what is going on in terms of regional differences when it comes to this? Yeah, well, we've uh, been finding consistently in the polling that the two places that really stand out as bucking the trend tend to be Alberta and Quebec, and Quebec even more so than Alberta. So I'm not surprised that uh, that Jane had that experience in uh, in, uh, in Montreal. But I can tell you, I just got back from Europe, you know, uh, last Friday and and spent two weeks there, and I can tell you that COVID doesn't exist in the minds of people who are there, and in a lot of places in the United States, it's a similar kind of thing. So Canada, in, in many ways, I mean, we we could be uh, uh, lamenting, um, you know, what we're seeing in terms of the statistics. But if if, if any place that I've been over the space of the last couple of months, because I've been fairly, traveling fairly extensively, um, uh, the, the place that does stand out is actually taking it more seriously is Canada. Really, that's that's interesting. And you know, David, I've heard uh, people call people saying, first of all, that part of the problem is that. Public health is sending messages that it's over. They're cutting back on vaccine clinics and all of that. And, and that fourth doses are not readily available for people under 60. Uh, some people are saying those things have to change. Uh, do you agree? Well, I, I think that the problem here is a combination of what public health is doing and what the media attention span is, and also, as uh, we just heard, there's other topics, you know, is it housing, is it inflation, is whatnot, and the intensity, certainly, that we saw at the beginning of COVID, or even the second wave of COVID, I remember the first summer when it lulled and everybody was braced for a return, um, it was almost the number one topic for all that length of time, and the uh, public health authorities had pronouncements to make at various times of what was the current wisdom. And that seems to have either fallen off or been um, very indifferently, uh, well, I shouldn't say indifferently, inconsistently dealt with. It, even this whole issue of why are we still testing or should we still be testing people returning into the country uh, given the airport congestion? So you have a little bit of a finesse there. So I think the topic is becoming diluted, and as a result, it gets harder to have any clarity around, okay, what is the exact situation? What is? What am I supposed to do now? Is it safe to go outside without a mask? Um, how many people can I have over? Uh, what risks am I running? If I've already had COVID, does that mean I can never get it again? Clearly, uh, the answer appears to be no to that one. 
but I think you're seeing a kind of a diffusion, really, the topics sort of dribbling away into lots of different subtopics, so we don't have the same uh, intensity, which means we don't have the same clarity if we ever did before. Hmm. Um, interesting. We're also hearing about backed up emergency rooms. Uh, we know we have a huge backlog of everything. Daryl, how, how far is that or is that on the list of the things people are thinking about? Oh, yeah. The, the, the wait sorry, times. Go ahead. The, the wait times, the, the backups in emergency rooms, uh, the closing down of emergency rooms, uh, uh, in uh, in many uh, places for longer periods of time than uh, uh, before. Uh, what we're seeing now is the evidence that we saw during COVID that uh, the system has not been fixed. It was bad uh, before COVID, and it's still uh, bad. And this this is a huge worry because more more and more of our of our older uh, CARP members and others are telling us that they're losing access to their family physicians, don't have it as often, depending on uh, emergency rooms and can't even get into there. So uh, that's, uh, that's an immediate problem for a lot of seniors. Uh, Daryl, is that registering on what people are concerned about? Or do you have a sense that the economy is really kind of taking over from health? Uh, we have, in terms of intensity, um, uh, definitely it's issues like inflation and housing that have, that have moved up the charts. But th- that doesn't mean that health hasn't gone away. Uh, it's just that the level of immediate uh, uh, intensity around it is not as high as it was uh, during the COVID experience. But, I mean, basically what's happened with COVID is that that, that kind of centralized, focused um, attention that it was getting in terms of the statistics of what was going on is, is basically falling apart. And that's why it's incredibly hard for anybody to really say what's going on. I mean, increasingly we're seeing, for example, the reports coming out of, uh, you know, wastewater examination because, you know, for testing, which we used, we were getting, you know, daily reports on. I mean, most people who probably figure out they've got COVID these days, I would strongly suspect figure that out on their own and don't really know that they should be reporting it to anybody and probably don't. So we don't really have any of that type of data. Uh, maybe we can collect better data in places like hospitals. People who are coming in who have COVID symptoms or are suffering from COVID, maybe we can get some better statistics about that. But really what we tuned the public to look to was the number of cases that we're experiencing on a daily basis, and that's completely fallen apart. So it's, what, what that's done is it's taken some of the moorings that we had for evaluating progress, for the public evaluating progress, and basically uh, dissolved them. So it's very difficult for the public to engage with what's going on right now because they can't figure it out. Hmm. Um, I want to pick up on something that Bill mentioned, and that is access to family physicians. Uh, And a lot of people are complaining that they still can't get a face-to-face with with a family physician. And uh, I have to tell you, I had a very weird experience. I I mean... I don't know what's going on because it seems like it is safe, safe enough, uh, at least in some situations, uh, if you need to have a face-to-face. Uh, I had a specialist appointment that was booked months in advance on the telephone. And um, 
it was for something that I think, uh, you know, I think these things are great if your doctor knows you, but it was something where I think that physician really needed to have a look at me, right? <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, she had read a couple of test results, had not looked at my chart, and I'm just thinking, is this a, a, a I mean, are physicians using this as a way to kind of uh, boost the number of patients they see? And, and I don't know, Bill, what, what do you hear? But what, what I hear is that physicians don't understand often how to use this new ability to do some consultations uh, uh, by, by phone, and they're trying to do too much. They're also making their, their patients very uncomfortable. If you have, as you did, something that you know uh, really has to be seen uh, to be appreciated, to have that conversation over the phone just doesn't cut it. I know of a couple of cases where people have had that kind of phone conversation, have given up on the issue, and then their malady uh, became even uh, even worse because of the delay of somebody actually looking at it. So it could be very dangerous for for many people. This this new uh, telehealth has to be learned to be used and managed in a much better way right. than it is now. Right, and it wasn't even a you know a Zoom call though. I hate those. I mean, it, it you know it was nothing urgent. But uh, David, I'm just wondering, like, is there you know, I I don't know, because <laughs> I think it's great for a lot of things, but our our doctors, I I don't know, abuse is the wrong word, but what, what well, do you they, make of well, it? Well, if we can believe a survey conducted uh, literally a month or so ago, not more than a month ago, by the American, the AMA, American Medical Association, they're, all of their members love it and are planning to do more of it. So... Is that because they can see more patients and make more money out of it? Or is it there's some therapeutic reason that they prefer it? But they're looking at it as, okay, maybe it was uh, stimulated by COVID. Maybe our, you know, we were forced to go that route because of COVID. Um, but now that it's here, uh, bring it on even more. So I don't think it's going to fade with the, the passage of time. In my own case, I've, I've, um, gone into my family physician's office actually for 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 blood test you obviously have to be there and you know empty appointment only um everybody in a mask and on the other hand um i've had a consultation um and i don't mind saying it was just about allergies it wasn't even a, a, a you know life death thing but with an allergist that my uh, primary care physician recommended it was entirely by phone, not even Zoom. You know, have you ever had this? Have you ever had that? Oh, okay, fine. And uh, so I've seen all sides of it. I think it's feeling its way toward a resolution, but I do think telehealth is uh, definitely here to stay. Oh, definitely. And and hey, I believe that that the answer to fixing a lot of the the backlogs and a lot of uh, the bottlenecks in our health system is technology. It just, it, it has to be used properly. I, is this something on people's radar? I mean, you, even people in different demographics, you know, if your kid has an ear infection, they've got to see the doctor. Right, right. Daryl? Yeah, well, when we ask people, <laughs> pardon me, the, the issues that the concern them the most healthcare is definitely up there, and when they when they're saying healthcare, it's generally not their immediate experience that's driving 
their concerns. What's really driving their concerns is what it's going to be like five, ten years down the road. And the uh, whether or not there's a plan to keep single uh, uh, payer, the single payer system that we have alive, and whether anybody can be able to manage that. That's what they're concerned about. So um, to the extent that uh, these new technologies and, and some of them being forced on us by conditions as we've gone through the last two years can help uh, keep the system viable, I think people are generally going to support it. I mean, just as, for example, we're seeing how they're supporting it in terms of how they're working uh, because there's, um, you know, I spent the entire morning doing Zoom calls. No, you don't like them, Libby, but, <laughs> but it's allowed me to, instead of getting on an airplane and traveling around the world and seeing people, talk to people in, I don't know, 15 different countries this morning. Um, it, it just it just makes sense, and it's going to make the same sense for the healthcare system. When you just need a consultation or you just need a, you know, uh, um, somebody to uh, to report back to you on results or whatever, um, it, this obviously makes sense. And particularly if you live in remote communities. I remember, you know, just over uh, around just below 20% of Canadians live in rural communities. So outside of major city centers where they don't have access to um, to uh, all of the specialist services you need, hospital services you need, uh, this type of thing is going to be a boon for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree where it's appropriate, but I'm just wondering if it's yeah, being used in ways that it perfect. shouldn't be. It's, it's, it's not perfect, just like a Zoom call doesn't replace a you know a face to face meeting, but in some instances, I think properly applied, it's it's uh, it's going to uh, it's 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 going to be one of the solutions. But then again, you know, form follows function, and uh, if uh, the incentive structure for doctors using it isn't properly um, uh, properly constructed, uh, then we could end up in situations where some of these economic motivations uh, your other guests were were um, were mentioning. Um, uh, that incentive structure could lead to some types of outcomes that we don't particularly like. So there's going to be a lot of trial and error here and design issues that we're going to have to be dealing with. But I think over the future, technology is going to be, um, for communications purposes, is going to be one of the things that uh, is going to help our healthcare system. Well, it was interesting. It wasn't until we were somewhat into the pandemic that there was a billing code for this. And I read somewhere that the, that billing code may be removed, which I think is probably not a good idea. So uh, we have to follow up on that because there were not a lot of doctors. I mean, uh, I have to say, generally, my doctors are early adopters, and I could reach them by email on the phone before there was a billing code. But, uh, you know, if, uh, if they take away the billing codes for it, well, uh, we're all going to be in the waiting rooms for whatever <laughs> Uh, back in there. Yeah, well, I think uh, governments are not necessarily geniuses, but they're not dunces either. <laughs> so somewhere in there will probably be the pro- probably be the the right answer. And if if it works, I, I can't imagine that, uh, that they they would uh, they would get rid of it. And if they do, they'll you know there will be the appropriate pressure placed on the system to put it back in place. I, I should point out that the industry itself, the telehealth industry itself, particularly in jurisdictions outside of Canada, um, are investing a tremendous amount of R&D in increasing the amount of data that can flow back to the docs through in real time through better sensors and monitors, whether implanted or in the home or wearables. And that they're really looking to transform uh, primary care uh, into a much more uh, data-driven, data in real time, uh, 
so that so that they can transform the whole experience. So it's not just a matter of saying, stay at home, don't bother worrying about a parking space, have your visit with the doctor over the phone. It's um, while you're uh, not in the doctor's office, you can be, we can be feeding him all sorts of data, he or she, all sorts of data about your situation and really um, improve the efficacy of primary care while driving down the inconvenience and the cost to the patient. So it's moving in a very uh, sort of revolutionary direction. Uh, I have, you know, my own opinion as to how much confidence that the Canadian system will jump on this, but I can tell you in other jurisdictions, it's moving very, very quickly toward a very uh, profound change in, in uh, primary care, particularly. Well, you know, it's all well and good if if uh, they read all the data, right? Um, so again, I mean, maybe I just had a weird experience, but yeah. but it was also clear that this doctor had not read my chart, right? right? And it, and the phone call was very long. <laughs> she could have read it quicker. So uh, all this data. So it, I think uh, some of it, getting back to the the pay scale for it, uh, you know, I I think there's they're going to want a way to be on the clock when they read the data. Well, well that's, yeah. a, that's a key point, uh, uh, Libby, and and uh, you know, there's no tra- real training being done uh, uh, for young doctors yet in this whole area. Uh, retraining is not happening with existing uh, doctors understanding how to use this. The system doesn't reimburse them for, as you say, the time in reading the uh, reading the, the charts. It's uh, and and at the same time, you've got the uh, doctors wanting to cut back on on uh, hours and not be working uh, eighty hours uh, a week. Uh, fewer doctors coming up. A real uh, a, a real shortage of family doctors uh, across the province and across the, the uh, country, all of these uh, impacting uh, and, and leading probably it would, it would look like to some misuse of, uh, of virtual, virtual visits. Uh, I'm going to take a call from David in Toronto. Hi, David. Hi, Libby. How are you today? Fine. How are you? Very well, thank you. Uh, I've got a, a, a comment and then a question. So, when I go to see a doctor, they can check certain things that I can't do, like they feel around the liver to see if it's cancerous, things like that. Um, you can't do that over the phone. But the question that I have is this. I have been to see my dentist two or three times since the COVID began. They have made adjustments. They don't allow more than one person in the waiting room. So why can't doctors do this? Um, it, it, some other people are, are answering the question, uh, but in terms of uh, feeling around your liver, um, if it's getting to the point where you can feel it, that's really not good. Hopefully you had it looked at beforehand. No, no, I'm just using that as, as an example. Well, I don't that's, have that. Yeah, because um, yeah, some of that, that's, I think that's the reason they don't do some of that, because uh, monitoring it in a reasonable way is, is not palpating. But I, I hear you, there are certain things things you actually need to see someone for right david thanks for your call if i can see a dentist why can't i see a doctor yeah that's the question (laughs) because dentists absolutely cannot do their jobs virtually figure out virtual drilling that would be (laughs) we'd like that too (laughs) that would be a win-win that would be a win-win um 
So, uh, Daryl, wh- what do you see on the horizon with economic things, I think, taking over from COVID concerns in terms of uh, what people in our demo might be thinking about? I mean, I've just seen some stuff that certain kinds of financial instruments might actually uh, be getting a little better. Yeah, no, I, I was hearing that uh, hearing that as well, but uh, the public's not feeling it. I mean, they're now going back to work. Uh, for the first time in a long time, they've, and remember, uh, the fastest growing com- communities in Canada, the largest growing communities in Canada are, are increasingly suburban communities. So these are people who drive their car to work. Uh, they're going for the first time in a long time to fill their car up and they're realizing it's costing them, I don't know, uh, double what they were paying prior to, uh, yeah. uh, to this time. And, and, uh, it's, it's a real shock. And that's something that you have to deal with daily. Whereas the healthcare situation is something for most of us on a day-to-day basis is fairly abstract until we have to, you know, obviously have some sort of an intervention for the healthcare system. So we can have kind of an abstract concern about it, but it's not really specific daily in your face. These economic concerns are for many people today are specific daily right in their face, whether it's the price of gas, the price of groceries, all of the things that you do in order to live your day-to-day lives are, are becoming more challenging for the public. And as a result of that, we've seen them rise in terms of importance. Before we wrap things up, I, I wanted to bring people's attention uh, to obituaries. Uh, first, very sadly, Irving Abella, historian, he wrote a seminal work called None is Too Many, which uh, showed Canada's indifference to Jewish refugees fleeing the Nazis, uh, sending them back to Europe. Uh, he's also survived by his wife, who is Rosalie Abella, who was Supreme Court justice until she retired last year. Um, uh, and, uh, well, an- another guy who has a lot to do with the CARP, uh, one of the CARP uh, uh, initiatives. But uh, anybody have anything to say about Irving Abella? I think he was a, 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 a giant because what he, pro- what he reported upon, which was a little known, easily glossed over, uh, uh, after effect of, of World War II and, and the, the, uh, when you compare the attitudes to immigration today in Canada welcoming, you know, whether it's Syrian refugees or Ukrainian refugees, uh, uh, he exposed uh, something that, uh, really needed exposure. And he was, uh, he was, uh, I think a titanic figure in, among Canadian historians for that reason. Yeah. Very sad, very sad news. Uh, going to end up on a positive note and from an obituary I, I didn't know about this person named uh, uh, Bruce Katz in the United States yep. he founded Rockport Shoes but along with that and those are he was the first to come up with this walking shoe category with a removable inserts but along with that to market it he launched a campaign to look at walking as fitness. And this goes back to the 70s and early 80s. And, and this is a carp thing now, Bill. Absolutely, it is. Uh, we now know there's been a tremendous amount of research that walking is the best basic exercise. Anybody can do it. It improves uh, cardiac health, uh, alleviates depression and fatigue. Uh, it improves your mood. It just does, uh, you know, prevents weight gain. And everybody can walk in some way or another because it doesn't matter how fast you walk. It's the number of steps that you take. And uh, anybody who's of an age who's taking 
six to eight thousand steps uh, a day is doing really well toward aiding their own health. So, so there's no question that CARP is uh, encouraging our members to be uh, concerned with their own fitness and begin your program by getting out and walking for at least a half hour every day. Sounds good. And when the weather is this beautiful, who wouldn't want to take a walk? Absolutely. Thank you so much, Daryl Bricker, Bill Van Gorder, and David Kravitz. We'll talk again soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Libby. Bye, Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Libby. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, um, do you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, people were desperately trying to get with pets? Well, now the opposite is happening. We'll have that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Remember back at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a huge uptick in the number of people acquiring pets. Well, now the opposite is happening. According to Toronto Animal Services, there's been a 63% jump in pets ending up in the shelter system as their owners return to work and or they can't afford the rising cost of taking care of their animals. Uh, is any of this affecting you or have you seen it affecting your neighbors? The numbers 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And now let's go to Dr. Enid Stiles, immediate past president of the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association and the owner of Sherwood Park Animal Hospital in Montreal, and Richard Paquette, director of with the Canadian Kennel Club in Ontario and a dog breeder who also works with dog rescue organizations. Thanks for being with us and welcome. Thanks. Thank you, Libby. Nice to join you today. And nice, nice to have you. And you know, uh, I think this was predictable. And I have talked to both of you in the past, and I think uh, that we sort of highlighted uh, this potential problem that all these people getting pets in the pandemic, you know, because they were at home all the time and they needed company. That that this was a risk going forward. Forward. Uh, Enid Stiles, um, do you think, you know, you could have foretold this? Well, I think we kind of did. Um, it was one of our major concerns at the beginning of the pandemic with the big uptake in adoptions and purchases of dogs and, and cats, too. And I think the big thing, too, is that many of the people who decided to adopt are people who didn't previously have pets. And so they're inexperienced. And that means and that comes with a lot of extra work uh, if you don't know what it is to look after a pet. Um, and that includes the issues that we had with socialization and things like that, as well as just basic care of pets and the needs and wants that they have. So I think it's it's expected. I'm sad, of course, to see it happen. I was hoping and crossing my fingers that we weren't going to see it, but we are. Richard? Yes, as Dr. Stiles has said, uh, reality has reared its ugly head and uh, a lot of people did not do their due diligence when they went out and sought a pet during the pandemic times. Uh, very frustrating from my point of view where, you know, at the Canadian Kennel Club, we try to educate uh, prospective puppy buyers to do their due diligence and understand that pets are a 10 to 50 year 
um, not only a financial commitment, but emotional commitment. And it's very unfortunate that, uh, you know, some people have now realized the folly of their ways. So we do always recommend uh, pet owners seeking out puppies to uh, do their due diligence and have a good appreciation of the financial and emotional responsibilities of pet ownership. Uh, Enid Stiles, uh, how much of it, though, would you put up to the economy? I mean, everything costs more. People are having trouble, you know, putting their the groceries on the table if they want the kinds of things they used to eat, filling up the car. How much of it is a problem of money? I mean, I'm sure that there is a portion of it that is... I don't know studies yet that have indicated what is the real pressure that is having these, you know, pets being um, relinquished. But I, I can imagine that that there is a financial issue, and I, of course, that concerns me. And we know that on the veterinary aspect, you know, we have a workforce shortage. Uh, the care, the cost of care has increased. It has, and if you weren't, you know, thinking ahead and getting pet insurance then you might be having some big surprises right now. And I, and that, of course, it saddens me just because I, I, I think that I'm sure like Richard, we know that pets can be such an, an incredible part of your life and your family and they can give you love and support and, and you don't need to give them that much, but they do still have needs. And uh, it just, I just hope people can reconsider before relinquishing and uh, consider keeping them at home. Uh, Richard, are you finding that money is a big consideration here? Yes, there are a lot of financial challenges. And as Dr. Stiles has pointed out, there is a bit of a shortage of veterinarians uh, nowadays. Um, Even puppy buyers now are having a a hard time finding a veterinarian because a lot of them are not taking on new clients. And uh, it is a bit of a frustration. Uh, Dr. Stiles mentioned pet insurance, which is a, you know, a very, you know, important consideration for pet owners to think about. And uh, we at the CKC promote our member breeders. And uh, actually, with puppies that are sold through CKC member breeders, we offer six weeks of free veterinary insurance. So, you know, all the things and advantages to buying, obviously, I'm a purebred dog breeder, so I do promote that aspect of pet ownership. But if you do contact the CKC, go on our website at www.ckc.ca. There are lots of tips for puppy buyers with respect to finding a reputable breeder, finding the right dog for you. And and that's so important also. And, And obviously, the advantages to purebred dogs is that those dedicated breeders have to follow a code of practice and code of ethics, and hopefully you'll get a product how, that you'll be more suited to. How is all of this affecting, you know, rescue and rescuing? Does that mean there are more dogs who need rescue? Yes, it, it is a very unfortunate circumstance that reality is that, uh, like, um, you know, Dr. Attard at the Toronto Animal Services has seen a 63% increase in dogs. I run a shelter here in Northern Ontario, and we do a lot of the townships and municipalities in the Sudbury District, and we have not seen a giant uptake, but we have seen a small uptake, and, you know, we we try to, before they end up in the shelter, help people rehome their pets, and and it is a difficult time because uh, a lot of rescue dogs and shelter dogs do come with some challenges, and, and it's 
frustrating that people are not more responsible when they seek out a pet. It's a big commitment. Uh, Enid, are, are there options for people aside from a shelter uh, if, if they find they can't handle their pet uh, in terms of money or work or whatever? Well, yeah. I mean, so we, you referred to sort of rescue groups as well. So I know might, you might put that in the same category as shelters, but for me, there are some smaller rescue type groups, often community based. Those are people to reach out to first. They, they know your community. They know what's likely. They know they may have people already actually waiting for this type of dog. They may also um, be able to offer you some assistance as far as, you know, is it a question of needing some help with a trainer? Um, maybe that's a behavioral problem that's actually not such a hard fix. Um, so I, I would encourage people to talk to knowledgeable people in the area, uh, in your community, and also speak to your veterinarian as well. Um, you know, we're there to help guide you. Sometimes the problems are not as grave as, as it feels in the moment. And like I said, I mean, generally speaking, these pets are better to stay in their primary home. Um, or to a family, per, like a, somebody that you know well, a family or friend, um, before they end up in a true shelter where we know that it's, it's very stressful for them as well, for the pets, uh, and the likelihood of, of finding a home starts to really start to drop off once they get into the shelters. Uh-huh. And what, what happens? Do, can they stay in the shelter indefinitely or not? Uh, it depends on the shelter. Um, some, some shelters are no-kill, which means they will stay there indefinitely, um, unless there's a major medical issue. Um, but many are not. So, you know, we, we, we know that sometimes they don't end up finding homes. And that's why we, like Richard's saying, you know, think before you get a pet. And if you have one, and now you're having trouble, maybe there are options for you that you're just feeling stressed. It's, it's, you know, you're in the moment. Uh, it's easier just to call that shelter or bring it by. But in reality, um, there may be some things that, you know, and I think you owe it to that pet that you brought into your life. <laughs> they really didn't mean to do anything harmful, and they are there just to offer love. Another excellent resource, Libby, is the Canadian Kennel Club, because we do have National Breed Club rescues right within our organization. So just reach out to us, and we'll put you in touch with the uh, rescue group for our purebred dogs, because um, I know our passionate breeders, feel a dog is a lifetime commitment, not only for the pet owner, but for the breeder themselves. And if you do have a purebred dog, first of all, reach out to your breeder. 99% of the time, they will take the dog back or help you with rehoming it. And if not, the National Breed Club will assist you in finding the right home for your pet. Are you finding that? I mean, purebred dogs would be very expensive. Are a lot of them uh, being returned, basically? It doesn't happen very often, but we do from time to time hear that pets end up in shelters or are requiring um, rehoming. And again, that advantage of dealing with a reputable breeder is that breeder is committed to the welfare of your pet and will, you know, jump through hoops to find a, a good, suitable home for it or even in my, in my case as a breeder, I take them back immediately and I rehome them myself. Some of them do need a little bit of temperament to work and socialization, but for the most part, when people end up in a very unfortunate either financial or emotional situation, 
and have to give up their cherished family pet. There are lots of resources out there. So, you know, there, do contact us and we will put you in touch with someone willing to help you in your circumstance. Uh, Enid Stiles, uh, are, is, it, is it more common with certain breeds, uh, with certain kinds of pets? I, I'm not, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a breed thing. I think right now what we and what we expected and what we're seeing is that there was a, a big uptake. There were a lot of non-reputable breeder, breeders making a quick cash uh, situation during um, during the pandemic. And so a lot of uneducated owners and a lot of not-so-great breeders out there, I don't even like to use the word breeders, um, that were um, taking advantage of the situation. So many of them are mixed, sort of boutique types of dogs, but there's everything, everything out there. And a lot of, unfortunately, some importation that happened and is still happening, um, you know, in, in high numbers. And this is really, and, and as Richard mentioned, you know, this is a CKC is also very aware of this problem. And our government is, the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association is working very hard to try and put a, a quick stop on these importations um, coming from everywhere from Asia and Eastern Europe, uh, as well as some dogs that were being rescued as well from countries, you know, street dogs, et cetera. Um, this was great when people wanted the dogs, but they come with their issues. And like Richard said, I can't call the breeder who's in uh, Korea to send it back to, a, you know, these are not reputable breeders. So, um, you know, this is, I think, a big part of the what these, where these dogs are coming from and why they're not being able to stay in the... In I, I was wondering about system. that. Is, is there a way of, uh, you know, controlling it legally or with regulations? Well, um, the CKC oh, sorry, is ahead, working closely. The is working closely with CFIA mm-hmm. and uh, yes. trying to establish, you know, good rules that will prevent mass importation of dogs from other countries. I mean, we have enough problems here in Canada, made in Canada problems that we need to resolve before we start bringing dogs from all over the world. Yes, it's a it's a lofty goal to, you know, try to look after the welfare of animals from around the world, but let's um let's focus a lot more on you know, the problem we have with dogs in Canada with occasional over-pet population. So, and as Dr. Stiles has pointed out, uh, a lot of these dogs coming from these foreign countries are being brought in by brokers who, once you have your puppy, they kind of ghost you. And uh, if you're having a problem, you're on your own. So that's so unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Enid Stiles, I'm going to give the last 20 seconds to you. <laughs> Well, all I can say is, like, please consider before adopting and do all of your research you possibly can. When you do have that pet, it's not like just, you know, a brand new car with no issues. Pets are living beings that have everything they can give, but they don't, they're not perfect. Um, we need to be understanding they are dogs, they are cats, and, and they are living in our world. Um, which is not always as convenient as we would like it to be. So it's a responsibility for their lifetime. And please consider that. Do everything you can to keep your pet or find a family member that can give it a good home. That's the best solution or a breeder that will take it back. Um, And yeah, they're wonderful things. Try and keep them. We love them. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Enid Stiles and Richard 
Paquette. And we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more on the chaos in our airports. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.